Welcome to episode 585 of the Entertainment 2.0 podcast brought to you by the digitalmediazone.com. I'm Josh Pollard, and this is the show that puts you in control of your favorite movies, music, shows, and games. That's right. It's another solo episode this week. Richard, not feeling the greatest, so letting him rest this week. But I'm not entirely alone in a sense, because we actually have a couple of pieces of listener feedback to get to. So in a way, I'm joined this week by Tim and Rob W. Both of those guys sent an email using the contact form on the website at www.thedigitalmediazone.com. But you can also just open up your favorite email client and hit us up at entertainment20 at thedigitalmediazone.com. Okay, so first up was Tim. You might remember Tim had sent us a couple of messages a couple of months ago as he was looking to really replace everything that was going on in in his house. He had an old media center PC. He had a really old Apple TV and uh, was looking at maybe considering cutting the cord, was looking at some Roku devices and or maybe getting a, a new Apple TV. Also wondered what to do with his NAS that was no longer receiving security updates anymore. So we ended up recommending that he get a Roku and that maybe he might want to replace that NAS too. So he wrote in to give us an update on how things have been going. And he says, I just wanted to follow up on this after a couple of months of using Roku. The experience has been terrific. In fact, it's been so good that we've decided to cut the cord. We already had all major streaming services anyway, so the real issue was live TV. We decided to go with a Roku Ultra Box at each television and are using DirecTV Stream for live TV. There are only a couple of options available for Cubs fans like us who want to access the Cubs marquee network to watch games. DirecTV Stream has the most cable-like feel, along with unlimited cloud recordings and no contract, so the transition has been relatively painless. Going to take a break there because the the second half is about NAS stuff. That's great. I'm really glad to hear that this is working out so well for Tim and for the rest of his family. I'm going to bet that he's not really saving a whole lot of money, but that's not always the thing that we're going for here. We just want a good experience and access to all of the, the content that we're looking for. And if DirecTV Stream is giving that to to Tim and his family, then great. But it is one of the most expensive options for one of these streaming cable TV replacement services. But sometimes you got to pay more to get the things that matter the most to you. And if you want to watch Cubs baseball, apparently that's the option available to Tim. He says, I'm currently awaiting delivery of a Synology DS920 Plus, which is a a NAS box, uh, which I will be using as my Plex server. With that in mind, I'm hoping you can have a conversation on the podcast about what steps you take and the services you use to back up your media collections, both video and photo. I've been using CrashPlan for many years, but the cost has suddenly skyrocketed, and I'm looking for alternatives. Now, I really think that Richard would be the best one to to talk about this here, and he's not here this week, 
and neither of us are going to be here next week. So uh, we didn't want to leave Tim or Rob because he's got similar questions hanging for too long. So we're going to try and answer some of those via email in the meantime. But I will give you a little bit of of an update, I guess, from from my response. So for me, I don't do that much of this anymore. I do have a Plex server running on my NVIDIA Shield TV, but it, you know, I, I just I I can't I can't even tell you the last time that I ripped a movie or anything like that. It it's been multiple years. Like we're talking maybe multiple years before the pandemic even started. I, I've basically just switched to uh, largely, I mean, occasionally I watch some of the movies that I've ripped previously, but not very often. Uh, I, I've mostly switched to streaming services and uh, occasional digital purchases and rentals. Uh, if I really want a movie, now I'll I'll typically just Go to one of the the digital purchase options, Vudu, and you know those types of services, Amazon, and just buy the movie, especially if it's on sale. And then I can stream it in 4K, and it's great. There are very few exceptions to that, um, but if I'm going to buy physical media at this point, it's a 4K, you know, UHD Blu-ray, and things have only gotten harder when it comes to ripping 4k blu-ray so i haven't even attempted to do that if if i want to watch a 4k blu-ray then i'm just going to stick it in my xbox series x and watch it that way as to photos and things like that i primarily rely on google photos but i also back up everything to microsoft onedrive because i'm already a Microsoft 365 customers, so I've got way more storage over there. Uh, but so I, I'm not actually backing up many of my photos locally, which I know I should be. I know what you're all saying. Your your important files should be in two or three, like at least three locations, really, to be super secure. And I, I guess most of my photos are in at least two cloud providers in in OneDrive and in uh, Google Photos, and then. You know, lots of the photos are also on my phone, which would be a third device, but certainly not all of them going back throughout the years. So given that I just haven't been doing as much of this over the last few years, I don't feel like I'm all that qualified to answer uh, Rob's question here. Or sorry, this was Tim's question, but Rob's going to have a similar one. (laughs) So Tim, thank you for that update. We love hearing how big, huge changes like this are working out for people. And and I'm really glad to hear that it's working out so well for you and your family. All right. We also heard from Rob W. And he said, I wanted to get your opinion on a decision for a new PC build I'm undertaking. I'm replacing my desktop PC that doubles as my Plex server. It's been chugging along 24-7 for years without issue. But I now do enough software video encoding on this machine that the i7-4770K processor is no longer cutting it. Yeah, that is a very old Intel Core i7 processor. <laughs> that's that's very old. That's like, I want to say like 2013 era. Yeah, that that's old. I I completely understand. So he asked, do you think there'd be a benefit 
to moving my Plex server, which is about 20 terabytes of media, to a NAS device as opposed to keeping it on the new build. The new computer would likely stay on 24-7 as well, but I've never used a NAS before and didn't know if there were other benefits that I've been missing out on. At most, we'll typically have about three streams being transcoded by Plex to various devices at a time. Thanks for any insights and love the show. Again, I definitely want to get a little bit more of, of Richard's take on this because this this is more the model that, that Richard uses. He's running Plex uh, from a NAS. But one one thing that I do want to toss out to Rob is, while this could end up being the more expensive of the options, is you could buy the NAS and use it primarily just for storage and still run the actual Plex server on the desktop PC that you're you're building. And so why would you do that? Uh, well, the, the main reasons are because there, there might be some benefits to having a dedicated NAS for other things. In terms of just running uh, a NAS as a Plex server, I don't think you're really missing out on anything there. I really can't think of anything that any of these NASs do specifically for Plex that you'd be missing out on. So, but the, but there are other features that that NAS boxes have that you might be interested in. They typically have their own types of backup software. If you want to be backing up your computers to the NAS, uh, a lot of times they have photo management software built into them. They oftentimes have uh, remote access software built into them. So if you are storing other things and you want to be able to access that content when you're away from home, there's typically ways to do that with with NAS devices. Now, of course, there are ways to do all of that on a on a desktop PC also, but it might not be the right solution for you. So absolutely look into the features that a NAS might provide for you that, that might be interesting to you, but you could just use it as the storage for, for your, your PC and still run Plex as a server on your PC. And I think, I think you're still going to want to do that regardless of, of whether or not you have all of those hard drives hooked up directly to the PC or if you do end up getting a NAS, I think you might want to continue to use the PC as your Plex server because you're talking about having three streams being transcoded by Plex at any given time. And that's a fair amount of work. And typically, NAS devices don't have the most powerful processors in them. Now, there are plenty of NAS devices out there that can transcode and can even transcode multiple streams at a time. But for me, if if I'm building something and and I know it, it's got to be able to serve three transcoded streams reliably to other people in my house, especially, you know, people that aren't me, which if it's more than one person, it's definitely not me. I don't want anything going wrong with that because that's just another support call, right? You are your home's IT person and you want to be minimizing IT calls. So having a more powerful PC handling that transcoding, especially when you're talking about that many streams, probably a safer option for you. But I still would recommend just go and and look at Synology, 
and and some of the other major NAS manufacturers, check out their websites and see w- what they offer. I mean, if if there are features that would interest you, they're going to make them super obvious because those are the selling points that they're trying to get people to come and and buy from them for. Uh, for. So I, the only super obvious one that I can think of is it, it's going to have things like RAID management and stuff like that built in, super solid. You're not going to require extra software or anything like that if you're if you're doing some sort of of RAID array. Um, so that's that's what I would consider. But again, uh, we'll we'll hopefully hear back from Richard and get his point of view on this very soon. Okay, so let's move on to the news. And we've got some interesting ones this week. Not unsurprisingly, uh, although fairly coincidentally, in that you know, the the last message that we just read had to do with Plex. Our first news story is also about Plex. Fairly big news announcement today from from Plex, and that is uh, two new features coming to the service. So these two new features are here to make it easier to stream all of the shows and movies that you want to watch. They're trying to solve the, the problem of how difficult it is to find the things that you want to watch because. Even if you know that a movie or show is available digitally, it can take forever to find what services offer that show or movie. So the first new feature here is just called Discover. And Discover makes it super easy to find what it is that you're looking for. Uh, and, and, and you can go and do this right from, from the website right now. If you go to watch.plex.tv, you don't even need to sign in with an account. Uh, but there's there's a search box there, and you can type in any movie, any show. Like just to test this out tonight, I typed "Hunt for Red October," and it will tell you every service that has it. And not only will it tell you what service has it, it'll tell you if that service requires a subscription. Like if it's on Netflix or Hulu, those require a subscription, or if it needs to be purchased or rented from the provider. Like maybe it's on Vudu or uh, Amazon uh, Video, but not Amazon Prime Video, and you can see all of that. And if it does uh, require a, a purchase or a rental, it lists the price there too. It's really, really nice, and it has a gigantic list of sources. It even included Hoopla, which is a a, a much smaller service provider that primarily works with public library systems. You know, so it it has that plus all all of the big name services. So that's great. Plus, it will look at your own Plex libraries. So if you've already got the movie or show in your library, it'll show it there, and that's of course the easiest option for you. If it's on Disney Plus, it'll show you that, and you'll click that link, and it'll open Disney Plus, and you can watch it right from there. It's really nice. I do want to take one step back because some of you might be freaking out at something I just said. It does it, it does have the ability to look at your Plex libraries. And some of you might be thinking, Plex is scanning my, my personal movie libraries and storing that on their servers. Are they then sending the list of every movie that I've ripped on my Plex server to all of the movie studios? And now they're going to come and come after me for, you know, crappy 
questionable uh, violations of, of copyright? Nope. You don't have to worry about that. Plex doesn't retrieve the list of movies that are on your box and pull them up to their server. All of that stays on your machine. They scan it there. They do not pull it up to the Plex servers and they do not share it with any of the movie studios. You don't have to worry about that with with this with this feature. So that's all pretty great, but that's not even the only feature. The other thing that they're adding is a universal watch list. And this is basically an extension of that Discover feature because you might be looking for something to watch now, but you also might have just had a recommendation that you should go and watch something while you were talking with a friend of yours and you want to add it to your watch list. But previously, there, you know, there are services that have watch lists, but they are specific to that service. And this is completely universal. It'll work with any of those services. So you can throw Ted Lasso and uh, I, <laughs> I was trying to think of something on another service, uh, Squid Game. You could put both of them uh, in, in your watch list. And then when you're ready to watch those things, it'll show you where they're available. They're probably not available on your current Plex server because they're both available on streaming services, but it's going to make it super easy to find them. You can also add movies that aren't even out yet. You know, (laughs) it's coming to the theaters this fall, add it to your watch list. And then once it's available on some service, it'll show up there and you'll have quick access to it. Again, huge, huge list of services that they integrate with. I think this is a pretty big deal. Uh, You know, even me who I like Plex, I think it's a great service. I don't use it a ton anymore. I I might use this a whole lot more because this, this really feels like the answer that Plex has come up with that's actually a good one uh, for how do we get people to actually use Plex as the home of all of their media, even if it's not actually their media, but it's the home of all media that they want to watch. You want to watch The Mandalorian? It's fine. You can still start from Plex, search from The Mandalorian, maybe go into your universal watch list and click on The Mandalorian and watch it. And then when you're done, go back to Plex and look for the next thing on your watch list or watch the next thing that's already on your Plex server or pop open Discover and and, and you know look for something else that your friend just told you about. Like this is... I I think a really great idea. Now, I, I have to say all of that while admitting that I haven't gotten a chance to use it yet. This news just came out today. So I've uh, other than that, you know, little bit of time that I that I did to uh to search for the hunt for red October in the discover feature, I haven't sat down on my couch and actually tried to use this from my TV yet. But man, this sounds like a real winner for Plex and a really, really great possibility for them to say this, this is why everybody needs to be using Plex. Even if you don't have your own Plex media server, you don't need it. You don't need it for any of this stuff. And uh, Plex, of course, already has a huge catalog of their own content that you, well, not their own content, but uh, free stuff that you can watch ad supported from I believe it's over 200 what they call live TV channels 
plus a huge collection of free movies that you can stream straight from Plex. So I think this is a pretty big win for Plex. This, Frankly, I think this is the biggest news for Plex in years. I I think this could be really huge if it works as well as they make it sound. All right, one more video story for you. And this one is for all of you TiVo Stream 4K users out there. So when the TiVo Stream 4K first launched, which was almost two years ago, I think, could be wrong about that. That was all for memory. And time during the pandemic is a screwy thing. So I could be wrong. But I think it was two years ago. And when it came out, one of the biggest selling points for it was that it was able to take TiVo's excellent guide and their excellent discovery features and fully integrate them with a streaming cable TV alternative service. And at the time, it was Sling TV, which for some people is great because Sling does have a lot of great options and it is one of the lowest cost options available. But, you know, that that meant that you could just open the TiVo TV grid guide and it would have everything that was available on Sling TV plus all of the free stuff that the TiVo provided. And it was a really nice experience. Plus the, you know, the the various browse type sections that are trying to to get you to, to watch, you know, other content that's available. It would integrate with that. If you used the search feature, it would also search what's available from Sling, whether it's, you know, coming up in the guide or if it's available as video on demand. It worked with all of that. And that's cool. And it's especially nice with Sling because, frankly, Sling's app is not exactly uh, top of the list when it comes to user experience and, and design. So that, that, that was nice. But Sling TV isn't the service that everybody uses. There's other options out there. And now they're supporting another one. And that's a big one. It's YouTube TV now supported. All of that same functionality that, that I just talked about with Sling TV, all of that will work if you're a YouTube TV subscriber. And the TiVo Stream 4K, it is a $40 dongle. It's very low cost. It's very easy to use. The only real downside to the TiVo Stream 4K is it's kind of slow, which you expect from a low cost streaming dongle. But other than that, the, the TiVo integration, it works really well. It's really nice. So if you are a YouTube TV subscriber and you've been thinking of picking up another dongle for maybe a, another TV in your house, you might consider the TiVo Stream 4K. All right, on to our gaming news for the week. And this is a story that's really interesting to me, partly because you all know how much I love to nerd out on gaming headsets and headphones. I think Richard, it it, it surprises him every year when we go to CES at how much I'm into headphones. It's weird. I, I, I don't even understand it. But but I am. And so I'm really excited about a new headset announcement tonight from Turtle Beach. They've got, it's an unfortunate name. Like the, the names are getting a little too confusing here. And that's, that's really true across most of these headset manufacturers. But especially for Turtle Beach, who's been making headsets for 
20 years, maybe more. They've been in the market forever. So they're releasing a a couple of new series. The top end model is the Turtle Beach Stealth 700 Gen 2 Max. We're going to talk about the Gen 2 Max, but the 700 and the 600. So, but these are all Gen 2 Maxes. <clears throat> so the 700, again, it's the top of the line one. And this one, it is marketed as an Xbox headset. And it's wireless, but it uses a dongle, which is fairly unique. It's not entirely unique, but there aren't very many wireless headsets for Xbox that come with their own proprietary dongle. This is one of them. And one of the really cool things about this is that dongle works with things other than the Xbox. You can use this on an Xbox, whether that's Xbox One, Xbox Series X, Xbox Series S, all of them. It works with PlayStation 4, PlayStation 5, Nintendo Switch, PC, all of those things. You just plug the dongle into any of those, and there is a little switch on the dongle. One option says Xbox, and the other one says USB, which seems a little weird, but basically, if you're plugging the dongle into an Xbox, move it to the Xbox one. If it's any other type of device, move it over to the USB setting, and it works with everything. There aren't many headsets that can, there aren't many wireless headsets that can claim to basically work with everything. One of the other features that that sets this headset apart from some other wireless headsets out there, and this will sound a little weird considering we're talking about wireless headsets, but it has Bluetooth. A lot of wireless gaming headsets don't have Bluetooth, but this one does. So you can also pair it with your phone or your tablet for mobile gaming or just mobile content consumption. Another really outstanding feature with this headset, 40 hours of battery life. 40, four zero. That's about twice the battery life of most other wireless headsets. It's still not quite as much as that HyperX headset that we talked about that was announced at CES at the beginning of the year, but still 40 hours, that's that's real nice. And if you're running really low, you can get an additional two hours of battery life from a 15-minute quick charge using USB-C. So yay, more USB-C in the world. It has pretty much every other feature that you would expect from a high-end gaming headset. It does mic monitoring, which is actually adjustable through uh, an app on your phone. And you can customize all sorts of things with the audio profiles in addition to mic monitoring on that. It has uh, the ability to balance out the volume of your game audio plus your chat audio. So if you need to hear the people that you're chatting with more than the game, you can turn them up, turn the game down. Maybe you're playing a really intense shooter and you need to do the opposite. Uh, All of that is available to you really easily with dials right on the ear cups. The mic uh, uh, is is one that works with the, the flip to mute sort of functionality where the mic basically folds up into one of the ear cups. If you do fold it up towards the ear cup, it mutes the mic. Makes it real easy to know if you're muted or not. Comes in two different colors, black and cobalt blue. The price, you're going to pay for this. 
It's 200 bucks, but it will be available on May 8th. I'm really, really interested in this headset. Uh, I, I've been using a Turtle Beach Stealth 600, no other extra words on the end of that, for a few years now, and it's been good, uh, but it's starting to get a little bit flaky. I've had some issues. I've had to repair it a few times. It seems solid again, but I never really know. And it's just kind of old. And it does, you, you can tell that the battery is, is, uh, is old. It needs to be recharged a lot, and that's annoying. So I've been considering something new, and this would be a really nice solution because it would work with everything else that I have. Now, if, if you like the idea of this, but you don't like the price, then maybe the Stealth 600 Gen 2 Max is the right headset for you. It's still wireless. It still works with all of those different devices, except it doesn't have Bluetooth. Also, the physical device is different. It looks a little less premium. It feels a little less premium. Uh, the 700 has leather at ear cups, uh, uh, ear cup coverings that probably feel fantastic. Uh, the 600 just has cloth. The 700 has a metal uh, reinforced headband across the top. The 600, it's all plastic. So it's definitely going to feel a little lower end. And there's always that possibility that it could break. So potentially decreased durability and definitely lacking on the Bluetooth side. But by and large, everything else is pretty much the same. And it's $129. So 70 bucks less, but no Bluetooth and definitely a less premium headset. I guess it's up to you which one you would prefer, but I think both of these sound like pretty fantastic headsets for anyone who is is looking for a headset that'll work with multiple game consoles and PCs, you know, basically anything you could throw at them. So very interested in, in both of these Turtle Beach headsets coming out on May 8th. Next up is kind of unfortunate news, kind of, maybe. So E3 has been the biggest video game event of the year going all the way back to 1995. And of course, that stretch came to an end in 2020 when the when the event had to be canceled due to COVID, like every other event basically that happened in 2020, it was canceled. It did come back last year as a digital you know, online only event. And I think a lot of people thought that for 2022, maybe they'll do it in person. But even if they don't, surely they'll have a digital event. But on March 31st, they said, no, we're canceling E3 entirely for 2022. So there will not be a physical event in LA. There will not be a digital event online. There will be nothing from the ESA this year. They do say that they're going to use this extra time to make an extra super special great E3 next year that will be both in person and online. But I think most people, myself included, are wondering, will you? Will you? Or, or, you know, basically, can you survive another year with no conference at all? I'm not sure. This, 
I mean, we've been talking about the potential death of E3 for years now. This could be it. I kind of hope not. I, I think there's value to these types of events, even if things have been changing over the last few years. Sony pulled out completely a few years ago. EA technically pulled out of E3, but they've still been holding their own events at the same time. Microsoft is has been there with, with Xbox. Nintendo holds events at the same time. And most of the big studios are either there or have their own events at the same time as E3. And frankly, I think the only people who actually complain about the fact that E3 is this giant onslaught of a massive amount of video game news in a one-week period are the reporters. Like It makes their job hard. I get it. I know. I cover CES. It's the same sort of thing. It is a massive amount of news that you all have to cover in one week. It's hard. I get it. But it works because the entire world is focused on that industry for that one week. And that's a big deal. So I do hope that this isn't the end of E3, but it could be. It wouldn't surprise me in the least. So if you're, if you're sad about that, oh, what other things can you, can you pay attention to? That EA event? Nope. That got canceled earlier that week. EA basically said, sorry, schedules for our releases this year just aren't lining up in a way that it would make sense for us to do one big event where we talk about a whole bunch of games all at once. So instead, we're going to do some smaller events throughout the year. Frankly, it's a strategy that makes sense because while I know I just said that there are benefits to having one huge event at one particular time during the year, there is also a benefit to spreading out some of your news, some of it. But even the the companies that have been at E3 were already doing that. It's not like you couldn't do both. You would just do different things like the, you know, the huge reveal of, you know, the, the, well, you know, I, I was going to say call of duty, but even that isn't correct because traditionally Call of Duty has had their first big reveal during the NBA playoffs. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it's it's been spread out for years because it just works to keep your game in the news throughout the year. So that's what EA is doing. We already said that Sony had pulled out a couple of years ago. I expect them to have smaller individual events throughout the year. So what else do we know for sure will happen? Well, Jeff Keighley's Summer Game Fest is coming back. Jeff Keighley is the man behind the Video Game Awards. Huge, huge show, getting bigger and better every single December. And in 2020, when E3 got canceled, he rushed in and set up this this digital event called Summer Game Fest. And it was a success. It maybe wasn't absolutely perfect, It was a little bit confusing at times, and it's spread across weeks, which made it a little bit hard to follow and a little bit more difficult to know. Is this even a Summer Game Fest event that I'm watching? You know, do I have to watch something else from this publisher also? I don't know. But overall, a fairly successful event from one of the biggest names in the industry. Another huge name in the industry, IGN, probably the biggest video game. Uh, I was going to say and entertainment, but primarily a video game website out there. They do an event called Summer of Gaming that I 
believe they started last year. I don't think they did that in 2020. That event was also fairly successful for them. It's similar to Jeff Keighley's Summer Game Fest in that they partner with game studios and publishers to give them an outlet to demo their games and talk about the things that they've been working on. Again, fairly successful last year. They're going to be back this year doing that again. Other things that we know for sure are happening. Gamescom in Cologne, Germany returns this year in August in person. And Gamescom, while while I always describe E3 as the the biggest in terms of, you know, really consuming uh the eyeballs and and the media attention, Gamescom is physically the largest especially in terms of attendance because it is a completely open to the public show and hundreds of thousands of people go to Gamescom every year. So this will be back for the first time since 2019. Also returning in person is Tokyo Game Show. That's in September most years, again in person. So that that's great. You know, we we basically start the season with E3 in early June. You've got Gamescom in August for for other announcements and then you kind of wrap up things uh, in Japan with with TGS. We're just not going to have E3 this year. What else do we think will happen? Well, basically, I expect all of the big players to just host their own big events. Xbox is going to do this. I'm sure of it. Nintendo already does really well with their Nintendo Directs. Sony's been doing their own things for a couple of years now. EA is obviously doing that. Basically, all of these studios are going to just have their own things. And some of them will partner with Jeff Keighley and Summer Game Fest. Some of them will partner with IGN. Some of them will partner with both and display different things at at each event. I I think the short answer is you don't have to worry uh, about whether or not you're going to get your gaming news this summer. There's going to be huge announcements. They'll be there. They're just going to be a little bit more spread out than they would have been a few years back if we still had E3 the way that it used to be. Our last piece of news this week is some good news, some surprisingly good news. You might actually be able to buy an Xbox Series X now, like for real. Like maybe not walk into a Target or a Best Buy, but probably go online and buy one. I did a little bit of checking tonight. Costco has them right now shipping, not in store, but online. You, I, I, I could have purchased an Xbox Series X with an extra controller for 550 bucks. Yes, it's a bundle. People get mad about bundles, but that is a bundle that's actually saving you a little bit of money. If you need a second controller anyway, they're typically $60 and this bundle was 550. So you actually save $10 in this bundle if you want a second controller. Amazon had them in stock for multiple days last week. Typically when Amazon has had them in stock over the last year and a half, it has been for multiple minutes. Now we're talking days. Walmart has had them available online for multiple days. Target has had some of them. Newegg has had some. This is fantastic news. If you have been struggling to get an Xbox Series X and and you've just given up, now is the time to start looking again. And it might not require you to be following all of the video game deal Twitter feeds and and all of the in-stock alert notification websites. Like You might just be able to 
go to walmart.com and buy one. Hallelujah. Like that's fantastic news. Really, really great news. So keep an eye out. Let us know if you've been able to get one through normal means now. All right, that's it for the news this week. If you like the show, if you get something out of it, the best way that you can show your appreciation for us is to just share it with a friend. We we just want to make this community bigger because it's more fun to do this stuff together. It's more fun to receive listener feedback from people. It's more fun to have people in the live chat when when we record the show live on Twitch. It's just more fun that way. So share the podcast with a friend. We're available everywhere that you can get podcasts. So if if their iPhone users were there, we're in Pocket Cast, we're in Spotify, we're all over the place. Just send people our way. And that's that's what we would appreciate more than anything. So let's get into what's going on in our entertainment centers. Well, I guess my entertainment center. I watched something again. Well, like I, I watched something like which is unusual for me, right? <laughs> uh, but it, it was an unusual weekend for me. And I made a very unusual choice. And I decided to watch Squid Game. Now, I know what you're thinking. Josh, you missed it. Like, that was cool last fall. Why, why'd you wait so long? I don't know. I just, uh, you know, I, I was looking for something to watch. And I thought, there have been a lot of people that made a big deal about Squid Game. I should check it out and see what it's all about. I mean, I kind of knew what it was about, but I didn't know that much. And I wondered if it was actually going to be good. I'm real curious to hear what other gamers specifically thought about Squid Game. Because I'll tell you, coming at Squid Game from the perspective of a lifelong core gamer, I wasn't that impressed. The storyline behind this isn't really anything that new. It's, you know, super depressing. Life sucks. So let's convince people, you know, I mean, in in other variations of these types of stories, it's force people or whatever, but, you know, get people into some contest that involves them risking their life. It's not a new concept. The types of games they play are certainly unique. Um, but, but the overall concept, not really anything new here. The, they try to add in a, a couple of extra subplots that, in my opinion, weren't you know didn't really pay off at all didn't end up being all that interesting uh the ending wasn't all that satisfying uh kind of disappointing really which maybe makes sense because it's supposed to be super depressing and they absolutely succeed at that uh i came i came away from this series I, i i was telling my wife jen about it a little bit and she she asked a really good question do you feel like your life is any better having watched that? No. No, it's not. It's absolutely not. I kind of wish I wouldn't have watched it. It's super depressing. It's super dark. Uh, it's obviously horribly violent. And the the only <laughs> the only type of people that I can really recommend Squid Game to, and maybe that's maybe that's even a stupid thing to talk about, because maybe everybody who is gonna watch Squid Game has already watched it recognizing that I'm super late to this, but the only people that I would really recommend this to are people who really like to consume TV and movies that are really tense and really fill you with anxiety and really increase your stress levels. And I know that sounds dumb, like who could possibly want that? 
but some people do. And I, I, there's only one movie I can even think of that has filled me with as much anxiety as Squid Game. And I can't even remember the name of it. It was, uh, <laughs> it was the movie that I watched back when Adam was still on the show, I think. I think. <laughs> um, but it, it had to do with uh, capturing a terrorist and trying to basically torture them for, for information. It was a very stressful and intense movie. And that's the only thing that, that's ever come close to, to this for me. Um, they're excellent at stressing you out and filling you with anxiety. It did that super well. If you're looking for that and you can deal with the violence and you can deal with it being super depressing, by all means. But if that isn't you, I I would say just pass. And if you want somebody to fill you in on what actually happened with spoilers and stuff so that you can talk about it at a party, I'll fill you in, you know, shoot, shoot me a message. And I, I can fill you in on those details, but really you're not missing much. Uh, for those of you who have watched it, um, I will say, you know, for the first couple of episodes, I thought it was pretty boring. And for a lot of it, uh, I thought, yeah, there's not really a whole lot new here. This isn't really that interesting other than like, oh, these are violent games that people are risking their lives for. I don't feel like it really got interesting until I'll say the marble game. That's when things got, that's when things took a really, really interesting turn for me. Outside of that, meh, no thanks. I I wish I wouldn't have watched it. All right, that's more than enough time on Squid Game. I did mention during the last episode that I was like 30 minutes away from finally completing the third book in the Three Body Problem trilogy. That book is called uh, Death's End. I've, I finished it that night <laughs> and I'm really glad I did again, absolutely recommend those books. You should go and check them out. And then on the gaming front, of course, I played a little bit more NHL over the last week and I played something well new to me, call of duty Vanguard. This is the most recent call of duty. And some of you might be thinking, but Josh, you talk about playing call of duty pretty regularly. We just assumed you were playing the most recent one. No, because Call of Duty Vanguard is based in World War II, and I just don't get into the World War II games. But I tried it out this week with with the friends that I normally play Call of Duty with, solely because they were doing a free trial. And, I, and I, I'm pretty sure this is like a two-week free trial. So if it interests you, you've probably still got time to go in and download this and, and check it out for yourself. I actually liked it. And it's maybe kind of a dumb reason, but the main thing that I didn't like about the World War II games is World War II era weapons suck. Like they're not good weapons <laughs> compared to modern weapons. So they're not as fun to use. They're not as easy to use. They're not as effective. None of that really seems to be much of an issue in Call of Duty Vanguard. In terms of the actual gameplay, shooting mechanics, time to kill, all of that sort of stuff, it feels much more like the, the, the modern Call of Duties, whether that be Modern Warfare or Black Ops, the the multiplayer experience felt a lot like Call of Duty Black Ops with a World War II skin. And for a lot of people, that's going to sound like an insult. For me, that was great news. But at the same time, I've already got Call of Duty Black Ops. So do I really need to jump to Vanguard? 
Not really. Am I going to pay the money for it when the trial's over? Probably not. If all of my friends that I was playing with decided that they wanted to buy it, well, then maybe, because my guess is that it's also on sale. That's normally what they do with these events. Make it free for a little while and put it on sale so that they can convince you to buy it at a discount. In that case, maybe I would buy it, but I don't really feel the need to unless my friends are like, nope, this is good. Let's switch to this. Okay. All right. Well, that's it for what's going on in my entertainment center, which also means that's it for this show. So we invite you to head on over to the website, uh, www.thedigitalmediazone.com. Over there, you're going to find the show notes where there will be links for every single story that I talked about here uh, on this episode so that you can get even more details. Maybe you want to go buy one of those Turtle Beach headsets. Links for all of that are there. Uh, Also, all of our contact information is there email addresses, all of that stuff. Plus, uh, if you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Richard Gunther, at Josh Pollard, and at DigiMediaZone. Home On is coming back real soon. You'll be able to find that there also. And the YouTube video will be there, links to our YouTube uh, site so that you can go over there and subscribe to that. And then hopefully we'll see you again real soon on a live show. We didn't do a live this week. Um, and we're not going to be doing any show next week because I'm going to be traveling for work. That's crazy. That's the first time I've, well, geez, that's the first time I've done that in many years, but (laughs) definitely the first time since the pandemic. And I am, I'm actually really excited about it. So uh, so there won't be a show next week that just won't work for me, but we will be back the week after that. And hopefully we will do that show live and you can follow us on Twitch to, to be a part of that because it is so much fun to have you all in the live chat when we do that, typically Tuesday nights at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Well, that's going to do it for episode 585. I'm Josh Pollard. Thanks for listening to Entertainment 2.0. Adios.